Well, we want to welcome you this morning to Plum Creek Chapel and uh, looking forward to continuing our series here, What Lies Ahead, a biblical overview of the end times. And we're going to uh, kind of begin our transition away from the millennium and into the eternal state today. We're going to talk about a prelude to the eternal state. But before we get to that, let me mention a couple of uh, quick announcements here. Um, uh, our Tuesday podcast this week with Christian Underground News Network. As you know, every Tuesday I have the privilege of being on that uh, show. Uh, we talked about Satan's counterfeits and looked at a number of passages of Scripture that talk about things like the false gospel that is so prevalent, false teaching, false prophets, false uh, uh, you know, different, different counterfeits in the church today. And, and the closer we get to the end game, uh, to the end times, uh, the more we see Satan's counterfeits rearing their ugly heads, and also, sadly, the more deceived people are. So it's kind of a, a, a tough combination there. 2 Timothy 3.13 tells us that evil men and imposters will get worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So the deception is getting greater, but it's also easier to deceive people. And so that's why we uh, took the time last Tuesday to just kind of call out some of the various counterfeits that are prevalent in our world today. I want to encourage everybody, if you can, to come out this afternoon at 2 o'clock. I'll be at Majestic View Church for a Not By Works event. Uh, we're going to be uh, doing a, a two-hour presentation there with a Q&A, uh, and the topic is the Great Satanic Reset, and I'm going to be introducing and talking a lot about the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab, and uh, since we've last talked about that here at Plum Creek Chapel, which was during our summer series last summer, uh, Klaus Schwab's come out with a new book, just came out a couple of months ago, called The Great Narrative, and he continues to explain the Luciferian agenda and what they're hoping to accomplish in this world by the year 2030. So I'll be talking a lot about that, The Great Satanic Reset, what to know and how to prepare. And I also want to mention that this afternoon I will be addressing uh, and sharing my thoughts on this, the Supreme Court uh, decision that was handed down uh, Friday regarding Roe v. Wade. And I know you'll be interested to hear kind of some of the insights that I uh, mentioned about that. So it's not, things are not always as they appear. So I want to encourage you to, to at least, uh, if you can't come out this afternoon at 2 o'clock, we will be recording it and we'll be posting it at the Not By Works website, both as a podcast and the video. But uh, it should be a great afternoon. I hope you can make it out. Uh, we will resume our midweek series on what is Calvinism and is it biblical this Wednesday. Uh, hated to miss last Wednesday, but I heard we had a great time of Bible study and fellowship together. Uh, but uh, always get great feedback on this. Continue to get emails and letters. Got another letter today when I got to the church. Someone had sent a letter here to the church about this series. Most of it positive, but of course the occasional criticisms from those who hold to a Calvinist view of the gospel. Uh, so I hope you'll come out for that Wednesdays at 6 o'clock. Of course, all of our uh, messages here at Plum Creek are live streamed as well. So if you ever can't make it in person, then you can go to plumcreekchapel.org for the live stream or notbyworks.org as well. Um, one of the things I'm going to be talking about this afternoon at the Not By Works event is Volume 2 of Spirit of the Antichrist, which we are uh, working on as we speak and hope to have it out by October or November. I'm going to be addressing a number of continuing issues related to uh, the Luciferian agenda and their attempt to usher in a one-world system politically, economically, and religiously. 
and how we seem to be knocking on the door of that and getting closer and closer. Um, I, at the end of Volume 1, I mentioned some of the topics that are forthcoming in Volume 2, and uh, so you can check that out uh, as well. If you don't have the book, there are copies available out on the table in the foyer for those of you here at Plum Creek. Uh, those of you live streaming or watching online can go to spiritoftheantichrist.org. Okay, with that, uh, let's talk about this prelude to the eternal state. So if we put all of this into perspective on a timeline here, you can see on the far right, uh, we've got the, the Messianic kingdom in the purple there. This is the sort of the end of God's plan of the ages. The Bible kind of tells a story that starts with creation and then fall as mankind fell, then redemption uh, as you know, prefigured all the way back to the animal's sacrifice in the garden to provide a covering for Adam and Eve and then continually running that theme all the way through up to Calvary where Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, became the ultimate once-for-all sacrifice, paying the penalty for man's sins. And uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about the crimson thread, and I sort of traced the atoning uh, blood of Christ through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. But as this narrative goes forward and God's plan of the ages is unveiled in Scripture, we get to the book of Revelation where we learn about this 1,000-year millennium, uh, which we just finished talking a lot about the last several weeks, and then transitions from that into, in, in chapter uh, 21 and 22 of Revelation, the eternal state where time shall be no more, uh, the uh, old heaven and old earth are destroyed, uh, because they're under the curse of sin, not renovated, but utterly destroyed and recreated once again in sinless perfection. So another uh, chart, this one that shows the tribulation judgments at the bottom, but I've highlighted here on the far right this section that we are sort of covering right now. So we talked about Christ's return at the end of the tribulation. Uh, the church, the bride of Christ, will come back with him. And uh, we will help rule and reign and set up the kingdom as promised uh, in the Old Testament. Christ himself will rule on the throne. And we talked uh, at length about all the different characteristics of the millennium, geographic, social, religious, just general characteristics of the kingdom. And uh, today we want to move into uh, the eternal state. Now, speaking of God's plan of the ages, you'll notice the final age is the kingdom age. We don't normally... Uh, demonstrate on a panoramic view of God's plan of the ages the eternal state because that's not really part of an age. It's, it's a, there is no time. It's an eternal state. That's why we call it the eternal state or the new heavens and the new earth. Um, there's no night uh, there, for example, so there's no way to reckon time. And so uh, the kingdom age, which is what we just finished talking about, at least the millennial phase of it, constitutes the final era, if you will, the final dispensation. That's the biblical term for it, by the way. You know, sometimes people, you'll hear people criticize dispensational theology. 99% of the time, they, they really have no idea what dispensationalism is. They've just been told somewhere along the way that it's bad, and so they just criticize it and create these straw men. They don't really know what it's all about. But dispensationalism is actually comes straight out of Scripture. It's a biblical term, or economos. It means stewardship or economy, and it's a term that refers to the fact that over time, God interacts with mankind uniquely in various ages. Not different ways of salvation, mind you. The only one way of salvation from Adam to the present day until the end of time, and that is faith alone and Christ alone. 
But certainly as we look at history and we'll look at the biblical text, we can see how God gave mankind different stewardships, different responsibilities at different times in human history. And the final one of those uh, dispensations is the kingdom age. And that kingdom age, as I demonstrated on this chart, includes the eternal state because the kingdom, when it is finally inaugurated, and we can't wait for that uh, glorious day to come, it is a kingdom that will last forever and ever. And of its uh, you know, of his kingdom, the Bible tells us, there shall be no end. And so all the prophecies that point to that future kingdom are indicate that it's a kingdom in perpetuity, but it's not going to be, a, you know, the eternal state's not going to be its own dispensation because once we get to that point, there's no sin, there's no responsibility, there's perfect righteousness, basically. Uh, there's no uh, evil, there's no time, as I said. So the dispensations refer to uh, time, space, and matter, God's created realm, uh, starting in the garden all the way through to the kingdom. So we left off last time with, um, the, with one more of the general characteristics of the millennium, and that is universal access to Israel. So we were talking when we finished up last week about the economic prosperity that will be true during the millennium. So again, this is that first aspect of the kingdom where it's still on this present earth normal everyday life except that it'll be a global kingdom i'm going to talk about that this afternoon the shift over time from globalism to nationalism and back to globalism again first under the tyrannical rule of satan's man of the hour the antichrist but ultimately under the king of kings and lord of lords jesus christ himself so the millennium is this present earth and in that time uh, of that thousand year reign of Christ, we will see universal access to Israel. Um, so, you know, as we sort of wrap up and, and put a bow on this discussion of the millennium so that we can move into what comes next in God's plan of the ages, I wanted to leave you with this uh, comfort, this sort of application. What does the promise of a future messianic kingdom mean for us today? You know, what's the relevance of this? Well, first of all, it gives us hope. Uh, it gives us hope, first of all, that even though Satan is the prince of the power of the air and the god of this age, and uh, he, this is his domain, someday the Lord's going to return, and he's going to cast Satan first into prison for a thousand years, as we're going to talk about in a moment, but then ultimately into his place of everlasting punishment. But also, at a time when the throne is vacant, we can look forward to a time when Christ will reign with perfect peace and justice. Uh, that's what the Isaiah's promise of the rod of iron is talking about, and the psalmist's pr promise of the rod of iron, this perfect justice. Um, we don't see much justice today, do we? In fact, the more time goes on and the depravity of man takes root, we see more and more injustice and inequity in life. But uh, we, the heart cries out for justice, and when we look forward to Christ's reign during that kingdom, we will see that hope fulfilled. Uh, here where all the earth rebels, hope in his judgment. Again, we're seeing more and more rebellion, um, and it's not going to get better. Uh, this ruling uh, uh, that we saw handed down uh, this Friday, overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, if you look at it two-dimensionally, well, well, of course, it's a, anytime you do anything that can save even one human life, and the life of the unborn, that's a good thing. But you have to learn to look at things not just two-dimensionally, but 
multidimensionally and see beyond just the surface level and see what's going on as part of the big plan. And that's what I'm going to be talking about this afternoon out at Majestic View uh, Church. Uh, so these are evil days, but the reason we, we study and look at and, and talk about the millennial phase of the kingdom is because it's a going, going to be a better day. A better day is coming. And I guess that's the ultimate takeaway of uh, the millennium. So before we move on to the eternal state, are there any closing questions or comments or thoughts that you'd like to share about uh, the millennium? And I'll put the chart back up so you can kind of see where we are in the progress. Any questions or comments about anything we've said about the millennium? Okay. Well, let's uh, move then into that the, the perpetual state of the kingdom, the eternal state, when time shall be uh, no more. In preparation for the new heavens and the new earth that the book of Revelation talks about, at least four things have to take place. Uh, first of all, we have to see the final judgment of Satan and his demons. Now, this ought to really excite us, right? Because, uh, you know, Satan uh, was cast out of heaven. He took one-third of the angels with him, and they... Uh, have ever since then been seeking to take over this world. That's what the Luciferian conspiracy is all about. King David talked about it in Psalm chapter 2, how the nations of the earth are conspiring together to try to take over this world and, and usurp God's authority. Satan wanted to be God. So he's got to be judged before we can move into a sinless eternity. Uh, we've got to see the final judgment of the old heaven and the old earth. This earth in which we live uh, is under the curse of sin. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, then we need to see the final judgment of all unbelievers because in the eternal state, in the uh, you know new heavens and the new earth, there will not be unbelievers. It will only be believers. Whereas, as we talked about during the millennial phase of the kingdom, over a period of time, eventually there will be many, many unbelievers that are born during the kingdom and choose to reject the free gift of eternal life. They don't believe the gospel. But after the final judgment and you know when we get into the eternal state, there won't be any unbelievers. And then the last thing that has to happen, and we're going to come back and talk about each one of these separately, is the millennial believers that do get born during the millennium and get saved during the millennium, uh, they believe the gospel, they have to receive their glorified body. So, I know we've talked about this before, but we're always picking up new viewers and new listeners, so let me just reiterate. Obviously, Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. Uh, flesh and blood is distinctly earthly. Uh, it is uh, Our very bodies are under the curse of sin. That's why they decay and get when they get old and they, they start to fall apart. And uh, we have problems, right, Dave? We, we tear muscles that we don't know how it happened. You're just picking up something and all of a sudden you have an injury, right? That's part of the, the physical aspect of the curse of sin. Um, so uh, in order to inherit the ultimate kingdom in eternity, we have to have a glorified body. So for believers in the present church age, we receive that glorified body at the rapture. Uh, Paul says we shall uh, be changed in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, The dead in Christ, meaning those believers of the present church age who have already died, and their bodies are in the grave, their soul is in heaven. Remember, the minute you die as a believer, you go immediately into the presence of the Lord. 
To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. So, uh, but our bodies are in the grave. So at the rapture, the dead in Christ will rise first, meaning their physical bodies are reconstituted and glorified to, to be ready for the eternal kingdom. And then the rest of us are changed. But what about those that are not part of the church age? What about, for example, Old Testament saints? Uh, David and uh, uh, Moses and Joshua and all the great men and women of faith from the Old Testament. Well, the Bible tells us they get their glorified bodies at the second coming. So again, if you go back to our chart, the rapture is over here. That's when we receive our glorified bodies. The second coming happens at the end of the tribulation. That's when all the Old Testament saints are resurrected, and they have their glorified bodies. Okay, so that pretty much covers everybody except those who are born during the millennium. Remember, we talked about how there will be natural reproduction during the millennium. And those ch uh, children that are born during that thousand-year millennium are born dead in their trespasses and sins, and they need to believe the gospel and be saved. Uh, and so some will. And when those do, when do they receive their glorified bodies? Well, they have to receive it uh, prior to entering into the eternal state. So we're going to talk about each one of these things in more detail. But did I see a hand, anybody? Yeah. So, a good question, and, and again, for those of you live streaming or watching this video after the fact, uh, we, we take questions here during this hour, and sometimes there's this moment of, of silence because I'm hearing the question, and we don't have the, the sophisticated system here to be able to pick up on the mic, everyone in the, in the uh, congregation here. So, I'll always repeat the question if you'll just bear with us. Uh, as soon as the question is over, I'll try to repeat it, but... Uh, CJ asked the question, the, the resurrections, the token resurrections that took place at the time of Christ's resurrection, according to the Gospels, wasn't that the Old Testament saints? No. Uh, Daniel 12 tells us that the Old Testament saints are not resurrected until the second coming. The resurrection that took place at the time of Christ's resurrection is very interesting. We don't know a whole lot about it other than the Bible tells us. We have the biblical testimony that there were a few graves that opened up at the time of Christ's resurrection. And the best we can say about that is that it was just a token resurrection foreshadowing the ultimate resurrection of all believers uh, one day, uh, but it was, not, uh, it was not a global or, or universal resurrection of all believers. Good question. Anybody else? Yeah. Good question, yeah. Yeah, I kind of left them out. We forgot about them. Sorry about that. Uh, I try not to think about the tribulation, but you're right. So the question is, uh, what about those believers in their mortal bodies who survive the tribulation? So if that's the case, what, what do we know about that person? Well, first of all, we know they did not believe the gospel in the present church age, or they would have been raptured. And they must have heard and believed the gospel after the rapture during the tribulation. Remember, there's going to be a great harvest of souls during that seven-year tribulation when the 144,000 witnesses first begin the evangelistic work, but then even beyond that, you've got, I think it's chapter 14 of Revelation, tells us there's going to be an angel near the end of the seven years that goes around proclaiming the gospel. So everyone will have had the opportunity to believe the gospel by the end of the seven years, and some will. So those are the ones that survive. They're not martyred. They're not beheaded by the Antichrist and his evil regime. 
they survive all the way till the time of Christ's coming. And then as we've talked about, they're the ones that uh, actually enter the kingdom in their physical bodies. We, as the church age, will be entering the kingdom in our glorified bodies, ruling and reigning with Christ, coming back with Him. But those that enter the kingdom in their physical bodies will be the ones that populate uh, the kingdom uh, you know, for the next thousand years. So when do they get their glorified bodies? So again, this is speculative, but I, uh, I mentioned this article previously, but I have an article on uh, death in the millennium that I believe that makes the case for what I believe will be the case, and that is that at the moment the kingdom uh, starts, at some point they get translated during the, the future millennial kingdom. And that kind of goes back to this point here. Whoops, to where is it? Uh, this point here. The fourth thing that has to happen is that prior to the eternal state, everybody that's a believer has to have a glorified body. So the Bible is silent on exactly when that happens, but we can sort of connect the dots theologically and, and you know, piece that together. It has to happen at some point either at the very end or, as I've speculated throughout, I think it happens at you know, various points throughout. Uh, but they have to be in their physical bodies to be able to procreate. And then they have to be in their translated uh, glorified bodies to be able to enter the kingdom. So somewhere in there, there's got to be that change. Good question. Anybody else? We've got such great folks here at Plum Creek always asking good, good questions. If anybody would like that article, by the way, let me know, and I'll, I'll be glad to send it to you. It's called Death and the Millennium, and it kind of touches on all these things. All right, well, let's take a look to kind of set the stage for each of these four things that I want to talk about in a little more detail at an overview of the eschatological judgment. So this is one of the many charts that we have on our Not By Works chart book, and it kind of goes through these future end times judgments. Uh, so the judgment seat of Christ has already happened. It happens after the rapture. Uh, and you can see on the chart there that that's only church age believers. And it's not a judgment in terms of punishment. It's a judgment in terms of reward, it's simply an opportunity to be rewarded for our faithful life of service on earth during the church age. And those rewards uh, will include positions of service, among other things, in the kingdom. Uh, but the Bible very plainly says that all believers will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, so that one's already taken place by the time we get to the millennium. Uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet are also judged at the second coming. That's when they're cast into the everlasting fire where they are tormented day and night forever and ever. Remember, the Antichrist is a human being. The false prophet's a human being. They're both human agents that represent the face of Satan during this seven-year period. Remember, Satan uh, is always trying to replicate and, and uh, counterfeit God, and so he has a counterfeit trinity during the tribulation. Just as God, the eternal creator of the universe, exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, during that final seven-year period, the climactic you know, end to this cosmic struggle, Satan himself will imitate the Trinity with Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet teaming up together to try to take over the world. But they will be judged and cast into the everlasting fire at the second coming. The, another judgment that we see that will have already happened prior to the end of the millennium is the sheep and the goats judgment. Uh, and... Uh, you know, th this is the one that uh, we were just talking about a moment ago about uh, when Christ comes back, he's going to separate everybody that's alive on earth at that time. Remember, there will be massive bloodshed and death during the, the seven-year tribulation. 
between the Antichrist reign of terror and his murdering of Christians and the judgments of God through the seal, trumpet, and bowls. We're going to see all kinds of death. But there will be people that survive. In, in, among that group of, of living believers at the second, I mean, living people at the second coming, some will be believers, some will be unbelievers. That's what Jesus described metaphorically as the sheep and the goats. And he's going to judge them when he comes back. To the goats, those that didn't believe the gospel, he's going to say, depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Uh, and that's interesting that he says that because we're about to talk about when the devil and his angels are going to go into that everlasting fire. But first, the unbelievers at the second coming go there. The sheep are the believers that we just talked about who will enter into the kingdom. He says, come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the, of the world. Remember, this is God's plan all along, was to come back full circle to a pre-fall Edenic state in the garden. So we've got this sheep and the goats judgment. So all of those happen prior to the millennium. Then we enter into the millennium, as you see here. So those judgments we just talked about either happen here, the, the uh, Bema judgment, and we don't know if it happens exactly at the same time as the rapture, or sometime during that seven years while we're in heaven, we, we, the Bema judgment takes place and everything else is happening on earth. But the, the judgment seat of Christ is here. And then the judgment of the beast and the false prophet is at the second coming. And the judgment of the sheep and the goats is at the second coming. Um, but then you'll notice the rest of these judgments here, these end times or eschatological judgments. Remember, eschatology just means last things. Uh, the eschaton is the, the end times when, again, God transitions into the final age. Um, but we have two more judgments, and that is the final judgment of Satan and the final judgment of all unbelievers, which is the great white throne judgment. So both of those happen at the end of the millennium prior to the destruction of the old heaven and the old earth as we are moving into the eternal state. So let's talk about... Uh, Satan's final judgment first. Throughout Scripture, we see various judgments that are spoken of uh, regarding Christ. For example, in John 19.30, when Christ is on the cross, he says, It is finished. So that is when the fulfillment of God's promise in the garden, when he said to Satan that the seed of the woman is going to crush your head, Genesis 3.15, finally, in time anyway, takes place. I mean, the victory's always been God's. God is sovereign. God is in control. He's the creator. There's really nothing Satan could do all along. It was a fait accompli. He had no opportunity to ever win this battle because God is God and Satan isn't. But in time, space, and matter, that, that judgment of, Christ, of Satan's defeat was predicted in Genesis 3.15 uh, when, again, God, after the fall of Adam and Eve, looks, talks to Satan and says, This seed of the woman, referring to Christ... Someday is going to crush your head. And then, so on Calvary, Jesus says, it is finished. So ultimately, you know, his judgment was sealed at that moment. But then we see a temporary judgment of Satan uh, at the second coming. So in Revelation chapter 20, I don't have this verse on the screen. Um, but in Revelation chapter 20, we read in verses uh, 1 through 3. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit 
and to shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he will be released for a little while. So we're going to see this final rebellion of Satan at the end of the thousand year millennium. But during the millennium, he's temporarily put in prison. And remember how deception, as I've said many times, reaches an unprecedented level during the seven-year tribulation. Uh, that's why in my book, Spirit of the Antichrist, I called the subtitle is The Gathering Cloud of Deception. Because this seven-year period that you see right there in the middle of the screen is the, the consummate deception. That's why Jesus, when he's warning the future nation of Israel about this seven-year period, repeatedly cautions them, do not be deceived, do not be deceived, do not be deceived, repeatedly in, in the Olivet Discourse. Um, and so Satan is going, and we read this multiple times in the book of Revelation, going throughout the earth during the time to deceive the whole world. He's, he's certainly deceiving us now. He's a liar and the father of lies. And we see this great last day's deception in the present age. But we're, it's nothing compared to the deception that will be global during that seven-year period when he tries to deceive everyone into taking the mark of the beast. And so this deception is prevalent and, and unprecedented during the seven-year period. Uh, period. And that's why it's interesting that when he's cast into prison for a thousand years, the Bible tells us, so that he should deceive the nations no more. And what this really tells us, and we don't want to get too far ahead because we're going to talk about why, the, why we need this millennium in a second, but it just shows you how the heart of man is desperately wicked. And even without the great conniving deceiver Satan being able to wield his deceptive arrows, People during the millennium, many will still reject the gospel. Um, so this uh, earlier judgments of Satan include the fact that his judgment was sealed at Calvary when Jesus said it is finished. He's temporarily cast into prison, but as, the, as we just read, the Bible tells us he's going to be released for a little while at the end. And then another temporary judgment is during, uh, I probably should have reversed the order of these, uh, but in the middle of the tribulation, According to Revelation 12, Satan is confined to the earth. So you, you kind of see a progression here. Uh, in terms of the grand scheme of human history, 6,000 years, there, there are a lot of uh, statements that are made uh, in, in the first few thousand years of human history announcing Satan's pending judgment and how Christ is going to defeat him and so forth. But not until Calvary, which is 2,000 years ago, is that judgment sealed and he receives the mortal wound. And then you see at the midpoint of the tribulation, he is confined to the earth. In other words, right now, Satan, remember, he's, a de he's an angel, a fallen angel, a demon, the prince of demons. But he can come and go uh, from heaven to earth. That's why we read about in the book of Job how he approached God and said, Hey, have you considered your servant Job? Uh, and, he, and he can come and go. And he's a, the great accuser. Constantly accusing us before God in, in heaven. But as we get closer and closer to the end and Christ's return, at the midpoint of the tribulation, according to Revelation 12, Satan is going to be banished from heaven and once and for all and have no more access. So he's going to be geographically confined to the locality of this earth. And, uh, and then he's going to really ratchet things up at that point. He's going to go berserk trying to just massively slaughter as many people as he can but then as i mentioned at the end of the tribulation another three and a half years forward in time that's when satan is 
imprisoned in, in the, uh, the uh, abyss, the bottomless pit. So those are some of the judgments that by the time you get to the end of the millennium, Satan is already should have seen the writing on the wall. Of course, Satan knows the Bible. He knows the Bible better than most Christians. He just doesn't believe it. He, he's self-deceived. He thinks that he's going to win. Uh, but any questions about Satan's earlier judgments before we look at the final judgment of Satan prior to the eternal state? Any comments or questions? All right, so if we read on in Revelation chapter... Oh, sorry, yes. Great question. So the question is, what is the um, time gap between the rapture and the start of the tribulation? Um, and so obviously the Bible doesn't tell us exactly how much time. So you notice on the screen here, I put preparation period after the rapture before the start of the tribulation, and I put unknown length. So let's talk about why we know there has to be a gap, first of all. Very simply, it's a logical deduction. Because the rapture is one event. The start of the tribulation is, is another event. It starts with the signing of the peace treaty in Daniel 9.27. So since those are not the same event, there necessarily must be some period of time between them. That's a, just a logical deduction. question is how much. So in my book, What Lies Ahead, which is kind of the, the eschatology textbook that we're uh, basing this series on, I speculate that uh, there's going to be an up after the rapture. There's going to be an uprising against Israel in the chaos that ensues, and that a Western alliance is going to form to kind of uh, come against this northern aggressor, Gog, and you know from the land of Magog, that's Russia, coming against Israel. And I believe that that battle, the battle of Gog and Magog, is what catapults the Antichrist, the future Antichrist, into world fame. Because he, everybody says, oh, look at this hero. He, he rescued Israel and he, he staved off you know, World War III or World War IV or whatever it will be by then. But in any event, my, that's my, the way I kind of connect the dots. I think that's what gives him notoriety. And then from there, since he sort of accomplished world peace, he's going to take the helm, sign a peace treaty, and that starts the clock ticking on that final seven-year period. So in order for those types of things to happen, it seems to me it's got to be at least several months. Uh, some scholars speculate it could be years. Um, I have a hard time seeing years, but I can't, I can't disprove it biblically. They might be right. Uh, but it's just a gut feeling that probably things are going to happen pretty rapidly after the chaos of the rapture, I mean left on earth. The rapture is not chaotic. The rapture is the blessed hope, and it rescues us from this present evil age. But uh, on earth, with the sudden disappearance of millions of Christians, you're going to see quite a lot of chaos and, and sort of, you know, God is not the author of confusion, but Satan is. And so I think we're dealing with probably several months, no more than a year would be my best guess. What do you think, by the way? I think it will be more like three years. Three years? Okay, could be, yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. Uh, uh, you know, three years certainly is a very plausible yeah, possibility. So many events have to happen before the start of the tribulation. So you said the comment was so many events have to happen before the start of the tribulation, such as? Well, such as, uh, I don't know, the false 
Uh, I don't know that the false comment is the false prophet has to come on the scene. I mean, it depends what you mean by come on the scene. The false prophet doesn't uh, take office, if you want to call it that, until the tribulation. But it's clearly the, the Antichrist and the false prophet are both human beings that have to be alive. Um, so, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, I mean, three years could easily be the case. Some people say seven years, you know, uh, just not that long. Yeah, I hope it's not that long. Yeah. Uh, but in any event, it's definitely the case that there's got to be a gap of time. So a lot of the old uh, charts that you would see uh, from scholars that take the Bible in its literal, grammatical, historical context like we do, dispensational scholars, they would sort of put the tribulation starting with the rapture. And that's a little bit misleading because obviously, as I just said, there's got to be some unspecified length of time between those two events. Um, and, and somehow in the midst of all of these geopolitical rumblings that are taking place after the rapture, the Antichrist kind of rises to the fore but not until he signs the peace treaty, Daniel 9.27, as you see on the screen, does the clock start ticking on that final seven-year period. Remember, Daniel the prophet is the one who first gave us this seven-year, I think I have that here, let me see, I mean this 490-year plan. Um, uh, and we know that the first 483 years of that plan have already been fulfilled to the day. Uh, Daniel told us that from the time of Artaxerxes' decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of Christ, the Messiah, would be 483 years. Well, we know when the decree went forth, March 5th, 444 B.C., and if you do the math, you, you wind up right at the time of Christ. Uh, best dating that, that I've seen is Harold Honer's dating. He's kind of the, was kind of the quintessential expert on the apostolic age. Uh, and that puts us right at the triumphal entry. But then Daniel says there's going to be a delay after that because the final seven years in this 490-year plan won't start until the signing of the peace treaty. Well, that clearly hasn't happened yet. Uh, some scholars who take the Bible allegorically, they don't take it literally like the way it should, they suggest that, oh, the tribulation's already happened. Well, I mean, you can read Revelation for yourself, but I certainly don't see the type of destruction and things mentioned in tribulation have ever happened in human history and since the first 483 years were take were happened literally to the day there's no reason to take the final seven years as some big metaphor or figure of speech so it's definitely a future but that seven year period again won't start until we see the you know the signing of this uh, peace treaty which starts the clock ticking yeah So, no, the, start, the, the question is, when, do, when will the clock start ticking? When will we know that? The clock starts ticking when the peace treaty is signed and the Antichrist takes over the world and he becomes the one world leader. Uh, so that hasn't happened yet, number one. And number two, 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us that can't happen. We can't be in this day of the Lord. Notice how one of the names for the seven-year period that the Old Testament prophets described it as, is the day of the Lord, or the day of the Lord's wrath. I don't have day of the Lord up there, but that's one of the names for it. And Paul tells us in 2 Thess 2 that you can't be in the day of the Lord if the rapture hasn't happened first, the departure. So we're still here. We know that we can't be in the tribulation. 
Paul tells us very plainly that the church, the bride of Christ, will not be here during the tribulation. Uh, we're not children of wrath. We're children of sons of God. So, uh, good question. Anybody else? Yeah. Do you think the uh, God and Magog war will precede the rapture, or do you think it will be after the rapture? So, I take it it's going to be after the rapture. The question is, will Gog and Magog precede the rapture or come after the rapture? As I mentioned before, I think it takes place in this preparation period after the rapture as a lead up to the uh, Antichrist's rise to power and signing of the peace treaty. If that's the case, what about the seven years to clean up uh, the, all the implements from the war? Yeah, there's no reason why that can't overlap into the tribulation period. The question is, what about the seven years to clean up all the implements from the Battle of Gog and Magog? We know that it's going to take a long, take seven years to clean up, but we don't know that that has to happen prior to the signing of the peace treaty. That's my only point. So that's the reason uh, some people, and again, they could be right. It's definitely, you know, would make sense in some regard that some people uh, think that the uh, this length of time will be seven years, right? But again, if it's seven, why not nine? Because what maybe it takes a year for the Battle of Gog and Magog to materialize, and then maybe the battle itself lasts six months, and then, but then you, if you if you think that the seven years cleanup has to finish before the tribulation, then yeah, you're going to be looking at a seven to nine year gap of time. I think Israel Loken, who's a friend of mine and yours, I think he takes seven years, doesn't he? Or do I, you I don't remember? Know, but I just would think they would have to the, the cleanup would have to commence by the midpoint of the tribulation because the Jews would be on the run at the midpoint. Right. And so at that point, I don't see a lot of cleanup happening in Israel. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and that would go back to more year three year period. But you know, again, uh, do, do, do we know that the tribulate that the uh, sacrificial system is reinstituted during the tribulation period? Um, but uh, you know, we don't know how this cleanup pro we don't know a lot about the cleanup project, that's all. So it's it's speculative. But again, it would be a very easy case to make that we're dealing with years. Uh, I just have always kind of taken it as happening in fairly rapid succession. I so you know, thought months, but I wouldn't die on that hill at all. One last question on yeah. that. Have you ever thought about uh, the potential that there could be some of these events that are prophetic that may not actually occur until the end of the millennium when Satan is is, is released. Could any of these any of these wars, these battles, actually be prophesied for that time instead of this time? So the comment is: Could any of these battles that are prophesied actually not occur until the end of the millennium? So um, when you say battles plural, well, I mean more specifically, maybe, maybe a God may God doesn't happen. Well, so maybe a Gog-Magog doesn't happen until the end of the millennium is the comment. So there is a Gog-Magog, as you know, at the end of the millennium, right? The Bible tells us that. But Gog and Magog, Gog refers to the leader of the land of Russia. Magog is the land of Russia. So when we talk about Gog and Magog, we're talking about a, a historical person and a land. Well, that's not a technical term for one event. There, that, you know... There is the leader of Russia, and the land of Russia will be involved in a battle in Ezekiel, which clearly comes, you know, prior to the millennium, right? Because it's prior to the description of the millennial temple. So you've got, in Isaiah, you've got, the, Isaiah 36 is the promise of the new covenant. I'm not, not Isaiah, excuse me, Ezekiel. 
Ezekiel 36 is the promise of the new covenant. Ezekiel 37 is the dry bones, you know, beginning to come to life. 38 and 39 is the battle of Gog and Magog. And then 40 to 48 is the kingdom. So that battle of Gog and Magog can't be the same one that, according to Revelation, happens at the end of the millennium. The chronology wouldn't work. So Gog and Magog is just a, a, a reference to a particular leader in a particular land. And we understand that there's, and by the way, that's been a perennial enemy of Israel from the time of Israel's inception. These lands from the north going way back into ancient times have always hated Israel and come against Israel, and they do to this day. So it's not surprising that that land would have multiple battles. Um, so I don't see the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39 happening at the end of the millennium. That, that happens before. But there is another battle also described as occurring in conjunction with the land of Gog, or the leader Gog from the land of Magog, at the end of the millennium. But are there other uh, battles or prophecies that you think might, that we tend to think happen before the millennium that you think could happen at the end? Perhaps the, the destruction of Damascus. I mean, there's nothing that would necessarily say that that has to happen before. Yeah, I would be much more comfortable speculating that that could happen at the end uh, and also I mean I guess hypothetically uh, it would mean my theory is wrong which you know what are the odds of that right but hypothetically the Daniel 11 uh, Western Alliance you know that's formed could uh, po possibly be in conjunction with all of this at the end but you just you get the sense when you read Revelation that this battle at the very end uh, here for this final judgment of Satan, where are we, here we go, um, this final rebellion, that it's quick, that it's not a campaign like Armageddon or a campaign like Gog and Magog. You just get the sense that Satan is released from prison. He hastily gathers up all the unbelievers that are on the earth at that time and says, let's go, it's our last chance. And then, they, and then with a word, Christ just defeats them all and casts them into the everlasting fire, the lake of fire at that point. And then we move into the new heavens and the new earth. That's the, that's the sense that you get. But we do want to hold all of these, uh, you know, timelines, the, the finer details of them, with a degree of uh, humility and, you know, not be dogmatic. We can be dogmatic about the big picture, to be sure. I mean, that's why this chart is just highlights. It's very clear that the church age comes before the rapture, the rapture comes before the tribulation, the tribulation comes before the second coming, the second coming comes before the millennium, and so forth. But yeah, some of these other details, you know, we want to study it and be willing to, uh, to leave some of it in mystery. All right, well, we will come back next time. I hate to leave uh, Satan's final rebellion uncrushed, but we're going to leave it uncrushed until next uh, week, and we'll read some of those passages uh, and talk about his uh, destruction. And then we're going to pick up again with number two, which is the final judgment of and destruction of the old heaven and the older. All right, so we'll take a break. Um, we'll come back together uh, here in the room at 10 o'clock for our worship service. Those, <clears throat> those of you live streaming, the live stream typically begins about uh, 1025 to 1035 Mountain Time, so just stand by and we'll be back with you shortly.